chaos. It's a word that seems to capture the zeitgeist of our age. Instability, wars, pandemics, and institutional breakdown. These have all led people to wonder, is anyone in control? Is there meaning and purpose to any of this? With endless choices and uncertain times, people today are less secure and more jaded than ever before. Doubts about everything are the new normal. We are living through an era that feels a bit mad. So how do we live by faith in a world of madness? This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. It assumes doubts and offers answers not addressed anywhere else. It explores issues that haunt us at the end of life. In short, this ancient book offers meaning in the madness by directing us to the purpose giver, God himself. The world's answers are incoherent and incomplete. Through Ecclesiastes, the Holy Spirit shows us that order is possible in turmoil. Meaning is birthed despite the chaos, and true beauty is revealed at the feet of our Creator King. Here we can truly discover meaning in the madness. All right, well, good morning, NBC. It is uh, 2023, it's here, so let's get started by doing a new sermon series, as you just heard, Meaning in the madness. Now, for the next few months, we're going to be studying the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes with all of its rich themes. And I have to tell you, Pastor Dave and I, we sat down, we read through the book again this week, and uh, we had some fun moments as we were doing that. And we realized why a lot of preachers shy away from going through Ecclesiastes, because it's a challenging book, uh, if you've ever read it, and and you're going to see as we go through the series. Um, But I think we neglect Ecclesiastes to our detriment. There's a lot of rich truths in its 12 chapters, but there's also a lot of contradictions and a lot of tensions. So let let me show you what I mean by introducing you to a really famous 20th century figure. Uh, Some of you have heard of Walt Disney. Yes, before all the controversies surrounding the company, there, there was a man with an optimistic dream. He wanted to make people happy through imagination. And he accomplished this by creating lovable characters like Mickey Mouse and rewriting old stories to give them a happy ending. And if you didn't know this, yes, all those Disney stories, they were very different in their original version. Just go look up Snow White after we're done here. Uh, Perhaps Walt's biggest legacy was the reinvention of theme parks. Uh, Disneyland, his first theme park, was meant to be an experience of pure joy fueled by imagination. And even today, millions upon millions of people have experienced Disneyland and all of its excitement. Why? Because we long for what it claims to be, the happiest place on earth. Now, what's interesting to me is that the man known as Uncle Walt, the man who rode around with Mickey Mouse and always had a smile on his face, if you read accounts of his private life, he could be very different. Behind the scenes, the real Walt Disney was a demanding, hard-charging man of a million ideas who exacerbated family and colleagues. His life was a whirlwind of visionary projects that just exhausted his associates, and even if it did change the face of American entertainment... And I think all this points to the reality of the Disney experience and the tension in our own lives, and that's just this. Have you ever, however long you spent in Disneyland, however long you were there, eventually you had to find the exit sign. Now, why do we go to Disneyland? We go there, yes, because we want our kids to have a really fun experience, or or maybe we 
we really want to have a really fun experience, whatever it is. Uh, but in reality, for those eight or those 12 or those 16 hours, depending if you want to leave at 1 a.m., uh, you know, that you're there, you get to escape from real life. But no matter how many pictures you take with Mickey Mouse, no matter how many laughs you have while you're there, no matter how many rides you took down Space Mountain during that day, it eventually ends. We find the exit sign. We eventually have to trade the magic for the madness of real life, and that's the tension, right? We long for the magic, but we live in the madness. What does life past the exit sign look like for you? Because pictures with Goofy, well, they, they might be traded for a demanding career job. Uh, a stroll through the magic kingdom fades away into the pressures of raising kids in the world uh, that we live in. Some of you, in fact, right here might be saying, you know what, Pastor Bob, I hate theme parks, right? Walking through a theme park, I consider that madness. And I understand, right? You know, you get there, and I've been there a couple times where you're just like, will this line ever end? It's madness, right? But if it's not theme parks, where do you go to escape the pressures of life? Because we all go somewhere. So, so maybe it's a good book. Uh, maybe it's a quiet park. Maybe it's a movie theater. But even in those moments, right, the last page is turned. You eventually get in the car to go home. Uh, the credits roll. It ends, right? What, what is your life like past the exit Sign, Because the book of Ecclesiastes is all about life past the exit sign. It's 12 chapters, know our tension. In one breath, we read this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, so I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Life is terrible. It's meaningless. Right? Everything in life is troubling. But in another moment, we hear this. Yet God has made everything beautiful for our own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people can't see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And you, you read those and you say, is that part of the same book? I mean, do you feel the tension? And that's why the book of Ecclesiastes is so important. It shows us how to live life in a fallen mad world full of tensions and contradictions and brokenness and injustice. Walt Disney sought to eliminate unhappiness from his movies and his theme parts, but they still existed behind the scenes. Too many of us don't know how to cope with life when we leave the theme park. When that Disneyland experience ends, we're still confronted with reality no matter how hard we try. And Ecclesiastes shows us how to navigate life once we pass the exit sign and encounter those big themes of meaning and purpose and work and materialism and relationship and death. When we're confronted with those big issues, sometimes we, we, we just say, you know, I wish I was a kid again, back online in Disneyland. Everything was simpler then, right? Let me show you what I mean. Um, my oldest daughter, she's six years old and she she is into the Disney characters. Chief among them is, El- is Queen Elsa. Right? Some of you might have kids that, that do this. Uh, let it go. It's in our house all the time. There is a childhood excitement about this experience, but I also, and more importantly, will teach her about the realities of truth from the scriptures. And recently, we've been reading through uh, Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Bible Storybook. Uh, in fact, if you, if you have a kid in elementary school, this is a great way to introduce them to the major stories in the Bible. Um, it highlights all the major characters. 
As we've been waking our way through the New Testament, we came to that story in Mark chapter 6 where John the Baptist is killed and his head is offered on a platter to one of Herod's dinner guests. So I'm reading this with with my daughter. Uh, It's a hard story. Again, the Bible's six and older, okay? (laughs) And after we read the story, she's asking me for a couple days. She goes, Daddy, why did she want to kill John the Baptist? And I'll say, you know, well, some people didn't like John. They saw him as a threat. She goes, yeah, but why did they have to cut his head off? I, I, and she, and she, I, even though I answer her, she's still asking that question. Do you see? She just can't comprehend this. How do you respond? Again, there's a tension between let it go and John the Baptist's head. That is life past the exit sign. I had an Old Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Danny Carroll, uh, he, he made this profound statement one time in class. I've never forgotten it. He says that the Bible is both simple enough for a child to understand and as complicated as the world that we live in. Because scripture can enthrall the hearts of little kids and they can guide the most jaded among us. And eventually you grow up and realize that the world is really <laughs> complicated, Bad things happen. There's a tension between what is and what ought to be. And that raises a lot of questions. So what is life like for you past the exit sign? That's what we're talking about. That's why we need Ecclesiastes. It shows us how to live in this tension, how to live as we leave childhood and enter the the adult life. It asks big questions and shows us how to handle those nuances. And so today, we're going to start right at the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And these verses offer an outline for life past the exit sign. So here's what we're going to see. First, there's a repetitious message. Second, we, we live a cyclical experience. And then finally, there, there's at least this empty conclusion that causes us some tension here. So if you desire to live a meaningful life past that exit sign, you have to confront these realities. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us for the rest of our time today. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize that life is messy, Lord. Some of my friends here today are walking through some some challenging uh, times. Uh, Maybe some people are listening to this now or later on, Lord, and and they're saying, yes, I I need what Ecclesiastes has to offer. My life is not easy. It's not simple. It's complicated, Lord. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would meet us where we are. And in the midst of meeting us, Lord, would you draw us, would you draw our eyes upward to see the creator, you as the creator and the savior of our lives. Challenge us today, Lord. Challenge the preacher today, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's first discuss the repetitious message of this book. Ecclesiastes starts this way. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you say, all right, a very uplifting way to start today. That's going to cheer you up in the new year. You see why we didn't start with that last week? Now, imagine you're leaving Disneyland, you get past that exit sign, and plaster in the ground, stake in the ground is this sign that just says, meaningless, meaningless, as you're getting out into the rest of the world. Yeah, but it's a refrain we hear over and over again in Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's not just how the book begins, it's also how the book ends. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says the same thing, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And you say, this guy just won't let up. It's a repetitious message that bookends the structure of Ecclesiastes, and the middle 11 chapters 
um, are going to seek to answer the question, is there indeed meaning in life? It's going to examine this statement that the, uh, the teacher tells us. So let's look at two words that give us a little background on this rather complex book. The first word I want you to circle is that word teacher. Now that is the Hebrew word kohelet. And that's such an important word for our understanding. In fact, let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Kohelet. There you go. Man, great. You guys are way better in the first service. Kohelet. I'm going to have you say another word. The Hebrew word literally means the one who assembles. The person writing this is gathering people together to impart wisdom, um, which is why it's translated as the teacher. Now, that raises a natural question. Who is this teacher? Who is the author of this book? And that's been a point of debate for many years. Uh, Traditionally, people will argue that King Solomon wrote this book. They'll say he wrote Song of Songs in his younger years. He wrote Proverbs in middle age. And then when he was old and weathered and beaten down by life, that's when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Okay? Um, Now, other people will say that Ecclesiastes was written later on after the Jewish people returned from exile. Uh, The writer then would be somebody who's like Solomon, but not actually him. Now, for a variety of reasons, I will just say I think it makes the most sense to conclude that Solomon did indeed write the book, and from here on out, I'm going to assume that. But I also want to do a promotional plug because I don't have the time to get into the nuances of this debate. Uh, Pastor Dave and I would like to do some bonus content throughout the weeks as we go through this series uh, because there's just too much detail. uh, It's it's too philosophical to get into in the time allotted. So be on the lookout uh, for what we're going to be sending out. We want to help you read this book really, really well. Now, the second word I want to circle is that keyword meaningless, right? This is the Hebrew word hebel. In fact, I didn't make the first service do this, but you guys were so good on the first one. Let's say this one together too. One, two, three. Hebel. All right. One, two, three. One more time. Hebel. Yes. All right. You're preaching back at me. There we go. This word is notoriously difficult to translate, but it is so important for the book. The NIV translates it as meaningless. That's what I'm using today. The ESV, English Standard Version, uses vanity. The Christian Standard Bible uses futility, and still others will translate it as absurdity. In fact, you could pick up four different translations and find four different words that are used in these verses. But all these words at some level just, they fail to do justice to what the author, what Solomon is saying here. What do we do with that? Well, first, I would just say that it is is crucial to understand Hebel if you want to understand this book. Uh, Perhaps the best and most accurate rendering of Hebel is that of mere breath. But you can see why they don't use that in the English, right? Mere breath, mere breath. Everything is mere breath. You say, huh? What? But that's how the word is used in other places. For example, Psalm 144, uh, the uh, the author says, look at what human being, look, uh, look, uh, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Essentially, our life is is breath. It's hebel, right? Our days are fleeting. Or Isaiah 57, 13, what does he say? He says, when you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry them off. A mere breath will blow them away, right? Hebel. Hebel. Now, what does that word picture tell us? Well, first, I would say there's a principle when you're reading the Old Testament, and that is this. If you know Hebrew, Hebrew words are very pictorial, right? You read a word and you get a picture of what's going on. The original audience uh, would have read this word and understood the concept. Solomon wants you to understand that the, uh, he wants you to understand about the fleeting brevity of life. It's like a breath. It's a breath. It's brief, You can't see it except on a cold winter's day, and then it's gone. 
In fact, let's do an exercise together. You guys are so good. Let's, let's do this together. Uh, help us understand Hebel. I want you to first take a deep breath in and then breathe out, okay? Let's do that together. One, two, three. Take a deep breath in. Breathe out. Notice how brief that is. Let's do it a couple more times. Ready? Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Solomon says everything is mere breath. It's here, it's gone, and it's easily forgotten. In fact, you barely notice it. How many of you remember what was happening 20 breaths ago? What is your life, he says? It's Hebel. It's Hebel. Now notice, what is the meaning of that breath, right? What happens during that time? Does it matter? I mean, we breathe in and out, right? Does it matter each breath? Those are the questions that Solomon is going to explore in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see two major themes emerge in his writing. First, there is a tension between what I'm going to call the secular and the sacred, Or put another way, you can choose to find your meaning and purpose in life with God or without God. Secular means without God, sacred is pointing to God. Second, with shocking simplicity, he just simply says life is short. If there's nothing else you get from Ecclesiastes in a first reading, it should be that, right? Your life, it's short. It's Hebel. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because you don't have much time. Now, these two themes showed up in full force last Monday night. Uh, Perhaps some of you were watching the Monday night football game where uh, a guy named DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field, a free safety for the Buffalo Bills. 24 years old, we're told, he goes into cardiac arrest. And people are watching this game and they're saying, 24 years old? That doesn't happen. Now, then he was in the hospital fighting for his life this week, although I heard yesterday he's posting on social media again. When you're that age, you think that you have your whole life in front of you, decades of life to achieve all of your goals. Just be honest. If you're 24 years old, you think you're invincible. Nothing can touch you. You can live life in your own strength. You can even do it without God. Now, this was a tragic scene, but but here's what I found really interesting in this moment. When, When they were out on the field, they were doing CPR on DeMar Hamlin. What happened All his teammates get down on their knees and they start praying. People on social media, they they start texting, they start tweeting, they're praying for DeMar. And they should. I'm not telling you not to pray. You got to pray. But what I find interesting is that we live in a country, we live in a culture that so easily shirks at the existence of God, but it's moments like this when we're confronted with mortality that the line between the secular and the sacred, they're erased. We want a higher power to intervene. Why? Because it's in that moment we recognize that life is short. It's, it's Hebel. Thank you. Front row. Somebody's listening. In these moments, people get down on their knees because Solomon tells us in chapter 3, eternity is written in our hearts. Because people know deep down there's a higher power and it can provide opportunity for us to tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. Ecclesiastes provides a bridge and it shows us how to live in these moments. Now, right now, right now, just bring it home. Right now, you might be living like God doesn't exist. 
In fact, you might have been coming to this church for many years, maybe even your whole life. You're calling yourself a Christian, and yet in the rest of the week, you're living, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, you're living like a functional atheist. You say you believe in God, but he really makes no difference in your life. You think you have all the time in the world until something happens and you realize, realize it's Hebel. When you leave Disneyland, when you pass that exit sign, you're confronted with the reality of life in a fallen world, and the question we're all asking is, how do we live? Now, here's what I believe. I believe that we all have moments in our lives when something happens. If it didn't happen yet, it will happen, and you need to prepare yourself. In those moments, we look up at God and we say, God, I didn't sign up for this. God, why did you let this happen to me? Everybody has this time. Why did you let my parent die? Now I got to grow up without a father or a mother. God, why, why, why have you let me, I've been working this job for 60, 70 hours a week. I don't get to see my family. You say, why, God? Why are you putting me in this situation? God, I worked really hard to get those grades, and I didn't get into that school. God, why? Why? This isn't the life I want. It's not the life I signed up for. It's in those moments that we realize that life is hebel. It's better, and I got to tell you, though, in those moments, it's better to live with God than without God. And so as you read Ecclesiastes, you can hear old man Solomon, this guy who's been old and weathered by life. He knows what he's talking about. He's experienced these tensions. Sometimes he contradicts himself, right? Other times he's just going on these, rant, these random rants in the book. But in the end, he does bring it all together, and this is what he tells us about life. He says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Because in the end, this is the only thing that matters. The rest is hebel. And that's why we need the message of Ecclesiastes. Author Phil Riken sums it up this way, really beautifully. He says this, almost every verse in Ecclesiastes shows us how much we need a savior to make all things new. When John Wesley preached his way through this great book of the Bible, he described it in his journal, what it was like to begin his sermon series. This is what he said. He said, I began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes today. I'm going to write in my journal later tonight too. Never before had I so clear a sight either of its meaning or its beauties. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected all tending to prove the grand truth, there is no happiness without God. In the midst of this repetitious message, do you recognize your need for a savior? That's what it's about. So Solomon hits us with this repetitious message that points to these realities of life. In the second section, he shows us how it plays out and why life is hard. So he points now to a cyclical experience that we all go through. And here again, I just got to tell you, I've been th I was thinking about kids all this week and what, what happens between childhood and adulthood. Uh, I think about kids. Now, I've made this observation a number of times in my own life. Maybe you thought this. Little kids, they run everywhere. Okay, hang out here after the service. There's going to be kids coming over here. They're running down the aisle. They're running up here. They're running on stage. Uh, Doug's going to be yelling at them to get off the stage. They run everywhere, right? They need to go to the bathroom, they run, right? They go into Disneyland, they run. They get to the grocery store to get their favorite food, they run. But at some point in our lives, we stop running. 
right? At some point in our lives, we stop getting excited about everything. Adults, we don't run. (laughs) You don't need to run. We'll, We'll get there, right? We'll get there. Why don't we run? What happens? And I, it's not just because our bodies get older. I'm not taking that excuse. Because kids love standing in line at Disneyland. Adults think, what did I just do with my last two hours? I think the cycle of life hits us. We get run down by life in this fallen world, and we start asking the question that Solomon asks in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what do people gain from all their labors in which they toil under the sun? Some of us even today are asking that question. You said, you might say, well, I've invested a lot of time in my work, in my family, in my, in my ministry, right? And some of us reach the point where we start saying, does this all matter? Right? Life is hebel. It's, it's breath. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does matter. Even during the breath, every breath you take, we, we want to make a difference. And so we're caught in this tension of we say, does life matter? And yet I long to make a difference in this world. But it's hard. And it's the reason so many people, once they finish their career and they retire, they just, just let me relax for a little bit. Speaking about verses 3 to 11, one commentator wrote this. They said, these verses are a poetic picture of the structure of the world. This text depicts the human environment as a monotonous prison. Does your life feel that way? Like it's a monotonous prison? You go to bed, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you play with your kids or you watch TV, and then you go to bed, and then you do it again. And as you get older, this, this tends to happen. And it's why we, and that, that, you know what, I gotta tell you, at that point, some people start to say, man, I really just wish I was back in the good old days of college. Wake it, we stay up until 2 a.m. and we go to Wawa and we have a lot of fun. You don't want that, come on. Now, I want you to take a moment and look around this room right now. Look around the room. Yeah, don't be shy. Look around. See the people that are around you. Yeah. Look at the people next to you. I, I'm going to tell you, everybody in this room, whether they want to admit it or not, they're experiencing life in a fallen world. Everyone in this room is asking the questions that Solomon raises. And that's why Ecclesiastes should cause us to look outward. Because every person in your life, even if they're not a Christian, is asking these big questions about life, and they're finding answers. So in a few weeks, we're going to offer some tangible opportunities to engage people like that. You could invite your friends to an alpha group, which we're starting next month. I'll talk more about that next week. Or during the Contend Conference weekend, which we've been announcing, we are hosting an underground sessions outreach event Saturday night, January 28th, 6.30 p.m., right here in the sanctuary. We're going to be answering today's toughest questions. That's the theme. So if you know somebody who's not a Christian or they're skeptical or whatever, but they're asking these questions about meaning and purpose and suffering, please bring them or, or show it, watch it with them later on. Start a conversation that tugs at the eternity that's in our hearts because it could make a difference for all of eternity. If you signed up for the conference, we assume you're coming. If you want to just come Saturday night, sign up on the underground page so we got enough food. Does life matter? That's the question Solomon asks over and over again. Verse 4 shows us why it's important. He says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. So this is a reminder about the fleeting nature of life, but it's also, it's also telling us that there's more work to be done. 
The earth, after you die, the earth is still going to be here. And it's important to contribute to the flourishing of future generations. So in other words, don't think that you're overly important. But also don't think that you're unimportant. God has something for you specifically to do in this world. He has a purpose and a calling for your life. But we miss sight of that because of this cyclical nature of life. And that's where Solomon takes us in the next few verses. He offers some illustrations from nature, or you can insert your own illustrations here. First, he says, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Because you see, even the sun gets this, right? What does the sun do? It rises, it sets, it rises, it sets, it rises, it sets, it rises, it sets every day. It feels monotonous. But what would life be like without the sun? Right? The sun is important. Now look at that word, hurries. It actually means to pant. And so the picture that he's giving us here is the image of the sun running out of breath. He's rising, he's setting, rising, he's setting, rising, he's setting. It's like a runner endlessly running around a track. But the sun is important, even if it gets exhausted with its job. The next image, he says, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. So first we had the sun. Now we have the wind. Look at that repetition. Round and round and round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. It seems to be heightening this sense of endless monotony and this feeling of purposelessness. And some of us might feel like the wind right now. Our lives consist of running around and around, doing the same things with no end in sight. And it's natural to ask, is it ever going to end? Is there purpose? Well, Solomon brings it home in the last illustration. He says, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To to the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now, do you see how Solomon's building this theme? First, you have the sun. He's on this monotonous task but we need the sun. Then we have the wind. Does it really need to go round and round and round? And finally, we have water. The source of life, right? In many, in many cases. But, but this illustration is reinforcing the idea that all the work we do leads to nothing. There's no satisfaction. We're never full. What does he say? He says the water's flowing in from all the streams in the world into the sea. They're never full. And then that water, it cycles back to the place where they came from. Do you see? It's, it's a cycle that seems to accomplish nothing. That's the cyclical nature of life. We have a sense of not achieving our purpose. And I think what he's getting at here is this is what keeps us from running after we're, we stop being little kids. Have you ever been here? Have you ever had this, this feeling? It's a human experience It's why a book like Ecclesiastes, again, should push us to reach out to our friends and our family who don't know Jesus because everybody's caught in this cycle, but not everybody has the answers. When people who don't know Christ experience the pain of life, when they walk past that exit sign, where are they going to turn? We have an opportunity to answer questions and point people to the hope found in Christ. But it does all lead to this question, why continue? That's what he's getting in here. Why continue? Is it worth it? You might be saying, I've been doing all this work and I got nothing to show for it. It's madness. What does it all mean? You know, Elon Musk has been in the news recently. 
this guy, right? Wealthiest guy in the world, kind of like Solomon. Seems to have purchased Twitter, not because he needed to, but because he could. Or maybe he wanted to make a difference. I don't know his motives. But I find Elon Musk really interesting. In fact, he's got all the money in the world, but I, I, was, I, was, I was watching this interview he gave somewhat recently, and he talked that at one point in his life, he was working 120 hours a week. He said, I don't even know there was 120 hours in a week, but he said, I worked 120 hours in a week. And, and he had been in the interview that was kind of unhealthy, and I said, yeah, you think, right? <laughs> but, but my question was, what drives somebody to do that? Right, this guy's got multiple kids from multiple women. He's working 120 hours a week, and he's always trying to start the next big thing. The average person looks at that and says, I don't care how much money you got. That's madness. But I wonder if Elon Musk is searching for meaning in the madness. In that pursuit, he's caught in this cyclical experience of life. He's like the sea, right? Never satisfied. But he needs Jesus, Right? We all need Jesus. On a smaller scale, this is all of us. Again, does your life feel like this sometimes? Or are, you, are you caught in this cyclical experience that is keeping you from finding your meaning and purpose? Because I think that's at least partly what Solomon is talking about in this middle section. It's all part of life past the exit sign. So what have we learned about Ecclesiastes so far? First, there's a repetitious message about meaninglessness. Second, it feels meaningless because we are... Uh, stuck in this monotonous cycle. But then there's the nail in the coffin. The final thing Solomon says here is essentially all of this, it leads to an empty conclusion. And some of you are saying, this is chapter one? (laughs) It's madness. Solomon continues the theme in uh, verse seven into verse eight. He says this, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of Hearing. So all things are wearisome, right? Which I say that's fairly obvious if you've read verses 5 to 7. I agree. I'm weary and depressed. The second half of the verse does not mean that humans are incapable of seeing or speaking, but rather that in the face of this purposeless monotony, we're speechless. Like we don't know what to say. We recognize we can't influence the world. We have to accept life and death as it is, which seems pretty empty. But then Solomon gives us a clue about our real problem. Look at verse 9. He says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. So he highlights that cyclical nature, but then he uses that really important phrase, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's, if you know nothing about Ecclesiastes, you've probably heard that, uh, that phrase before. It's a phrase that's going to come up over and over again in this book, and it has a dual meaning. First, Solomon's letting us know that he's talking about the temporal life of the here and now. Not eternal life, right now. And then secondly, he's talking about the secular life, life without God. In other words, what he's saying is that when we're only focused on the here and now, when we're only trying to achieve happiness through through money or fame or education or relationships or whatever it is, when we're focusing on building our little kingdom to the neglect of our creator, that is the empty conclusion. And so we've come this far in the sermon, and some of you are saying, this is depressing, right? All I'm hearing is life is meaningless. I want to know, how do I find my purpose? Well, in the final two verses, I think Solomon points to the antidote for our emptiness problem. Look at what he says. 
He says, if there's anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And this verse shows us the wisdom of Solomon's age and experience. What, when we're young, we have a tendency to think that we can change the world. That, that we can even, we, we even think we're going to be the next great thing in whatever field we're in. But Solomon says, no, 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 there's nothing new. There's nothing new. I was recently talking with uh, my cousin, who's a professor out, out west, at one of the colleges out west. And uh, we're, we're similar ages. We're just getting into our 40s. And I understand that's still on the younger end, but listen, it's older than 20. Um, at the beginning of middle age, I think your expectations start to get tempered. Because here was his comment. I said, you're turning 40, you know, how does that feel? <laughs> and he said, well, as you get older, you start to realize that you're not the protagonist of the world. Which I found a really, a really interesting comment because I don't, I don't describe him as being spiritual. And I think it's the thought that Solomon's getting at in verse 11. He says, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Which I think proves my cousin's point. No matter how important you think you are right now, in a hundred years, most likely nobody alive is going to know who you are. Not even the people that descend from you. right? And that's pretty sobering. Now, maybe some of us will make it in the history books, but comparatively very few. And yet, <laughs> and yet, this is kind of comical, and yet we all have a tendency to live like the world revolves around us and like we're mo- the most important person in the world. And I wonder if that is our problem when it comes to finding our meaning and our purpose. Instead, it's actually madness, right? That's what he's saying here. We all die and we're not going to be remembered. So what are we missing? Well, let me give you one more illustration. And I've used this one before, but it's, 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 it's stuck with me over the years. Um, imagine right now <clears throat> that you are four years old, and you're going to a birthday party for a friend. Okay, now if you've forgotten what this is like, let me, let me just describe this to you, and let me use myself as an illustration. So let's picture little Bobby. His mom is taking him to a birthday party for little Dave, okay? Little Dave, man, he's turning four. He thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. Oh, my God. And if you haven't been to a birthday party for little kids recently, let me just tell you. You get there, and what's going on? It's chaos, right? Uh, There's an activity. They're bouncing off the walls. And then what do we do? We lead up, and we give them birthday cake, right? And then we give them a bunch of sugar, and then what happens? More chaos, right? After the birthday cake is done, what do you do, right? What's the big culmination of the birthday experience? The presents, right? So this picture, we got little Dave over here. He's sitting in there. His mom's next to him. Everybody's bringing presents to him. They're putting it at his feet because it's his, it's his birthday, right? It's little Dave's birthday. Well, sometimes you go to these parties, and depending on how, how old they are, right? Four is a good... Everybody sees the presents, and what do the little kids do? They want to go and open the presents themselves, all right? So let's picture little Bobby. He sees those presents out in front of little Dave. He runs up and he starts to open up some of the presents because he's excited. And then other people start jumping in. They're all trying to open the presents. The parents come. They pull the kids away. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody's crying. <clears throat> now the good parents, and hopefully you're the good parent, they'll take their kids over. And let's just say his mom, little Bobby's mom, takes him over and tries to explain to him about the realities of life. She gets down on one knee, she looks him in the eye and says, little Bobby, you can't open the presents. And he's like, why? 
<laughs> and she says, listen, I got to tell you, you can't open the presents because what? Because this is little Dave's party. It's not your party. It's his party. Now you laugh because it's funny because it's true. A four-year-old's birthday party shows us a lot about ourselves. Because too many of us right now, we're living life like it's our party. But it's not. It's God's party. So what do we say? We wake up and say, God, why is life so hard? We work endless hours to make more money. We look at other people and we're envious of them. We think we deserve more. Why? Because we think it's our party. But this world is God's party. And the reason it feels so monotonous and repetitious and purposeless is because we think this world is about us. But it's not. It's about God and celebrating him every day. And so the way Solomon puts it, he says essentially this. He says, stop living like life under the sun. You've got to look beyond the sun. You've got to look beyond the sun to the one who created it. It's there that you're going to find meaning and purpose when you're celebrating him because it's his party. And when you do that, you're not going to grow weary because you will be filled up by him. You're going to find a cause worth emptying yourself out for, and it's never going to run dry. Ecclesiastes is showing us our need for God. But it doesn't end with Ecclesiastes. In fact, the story continues. Hundreds of years later, a Jewish leader turned follower of Jesus named Paul, he's going to write a letter to a church in Corinth. And he's going to offer an answer to the statement, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul says, no, there is something new. What does he say? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Because when you look beyond the sun, God himself breaks into the world and makes all things new, like we talked about earlier. God himself gave uh, himself through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have new life and meaning and purpose. That's what we were made for. And if you know Jesus, life is not mere hebel. It's eternal. And because of that, life is not meaningless and death is not the end. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the resurrection of the dead. And he lets the Christians know what would happen if Christ had not been raised. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? It's useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, much of what Solomon said in chapter 1 is right. He says your faith is useless, and that word useless is the Greek word that's often translated for the Hebrew word hebel. In other words, our faith is meaningless if Christ did not rise from the dead. But he concludes in verse 20, but Christ has indeed risen from the dead. There is meaning and purpose through the one who has reversed death. Don't just live under the sun. You've got to look beyond the sun, S-U-N. We're going to come back to this theme over and over again. We're going to cover the major themes of life We're going to talk about opportunities to talk with others about Jesus. And so right now I want to challenge you, this week, start reading Ecclesiastes. Some of us in here, you know Ecclesiastes exists. You've never read it. Read Ecclesiastes this season. Right now, if you read and meditate on one chapter a week, you're going to get through the whole book by Easter time. 
It's a book that's meant to be digested and discussed and, and meditated on. So before we leave, let me just offer three quick application points to find meaning in the madness this week. How do we live life past the exit sign? First, I would tell you, you have to start cultivating prayer. Friends, I know life may feel crazy or discouraging or overwhelming right now, but the most important thing you can do, and I got to tell you, God's been teaching me so much about this recently, the most important thing you can do is cultivate an intimate prayer life with your creator. It's his party. Only he is in control. Only he can offer the answers to whatever suffering you're going through or whatever meaning problem you're having. Talk to him. It's above my pay grade. When Jesus himself was talking about prayer, what did he say? Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, when Jesus is your treasure, it filters out all that distracting sin in your life. Seek God in prayer and you'll find your meaning no matter how mad the world is. Second, you gotta live out hope. Okay, and now Ecclesiastes, again, may feel like, you say it's, it's a depressing read, but it's not meant to be that way. Right? It's meant to show us how to live life when we feel depressed. It's meant to show us how to live in the tension and handle the adversity of life. We do that, as we just learned, by looking beyond the sun to our creator king. Too many people try to handle adversity by their own efforts or they, pers- they, pursue their, they, or they find their purpose in pursuits other than God. But what does Jesus tell Peter? Matthew 16, 26, he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Finding hope in anything other than God will lead to despair. And too many people are living in despair. If you know Jesus, you don't have to live there. It's a choice. Get out of the pit and get into his arms. And then finally, when you do that, encourage others. I want you to look around this room one more time. That's all right, look around. Look around at everybody, okay? One in here, at some level, is facing the challenges of life as we discussed today, and they need encouragement. We have too little encouragement in this world. Others need to be encouraged in the battle. And so after the service today, find one person and encourage them. There's one person. Encourage them. And if they don't know their meaning in life or they've forgotten, you just tell them this. Stop living under the sun. Look beyond the S-U-N sun. Look to the one who created you and who made the world. He loves you and he has a purpose for your life. And when you do that, I think you're going to appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes a whole lot more. See it as a gift God has given to teach us how to navigate the tensions of life as we trust him. How will you live past the exit sign? And with all due respect to Walt Disney, uh, the happiest place on earth is in the arms of our Savior. And when you're in his arms and he's guiding you, you will know your purpose. So how did Paul encourage the Corinthians? He said, brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you ever do for the Lord is useless. It's not meaningless. You will bear fruit to the glory of God. When you invest your work in God's kingdom, you can show others who don't know Jesus that meaning and purpose are found in him. And you'll, you'll start a legacy that will carry on for years. So as the worship team comes up, they're going to they're gonna do one last song. We're going to respond in song. I want to do that breathing exercise one more time. And I want you to once again take notice of your breath. So ready? Let's do this together. One, two, three. Breathe in. 
Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. And again, think about how short that is. It's your life. How will you use it? And now I want you to think about Millington Baptist Church. Does anybody in here know the names of the people who started Millington like 175 years ago? Now, Pastor Dave told me the other day he knew the founding pastor. Okay. Does anybody know the names of anybody else other than the founding pastor in here? Probably nobody. But the church is still here doing gospel ministry because those people, almost two centuries ago, said, I'm going to use my short life to make a difference. I'm going to find my meaning and purpose in Jesus Christ and build his kingdom. Those people chose to follow Jesus past the exit sign, and we're receiving the fruit of that. Will we do the same? Will we help those around us find meaning in the madness in this world? And my prayer today is that we would, for God's glory and for the sake of his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for my friends who are here. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the word that does not return void. Thank you for the depth of a book like Ecclesiastes and what we're going to cover in the next few uh, months, Lord God. Help us to find our meaning despite the madness of life, that you're the one who called us out on the water despite the storms that are out there. You want us to look to you, Lord, the purpose giver, the one who can help us find beauty in the midst of the chaos. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for making all things new, and we look forward to your return where you will come and put all things right. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.